Listen, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians as the kiddos head out. Don't you love Christmas music? That was awesome. Thanks, you guys. That was so fun. A couple more quick announcements about next week, the 19th. Um, It's a little different this year because our Christmas service falls six full days before... uh, before Christmas, and so it feels a little different, but we have two services next Sunday. On the back table are the door hangers that many of us kind of blanketed the neighborhood with last Saturday. There are a bunch more. We had extras made up, so you could grab a stack, uh, pass them around your neighborhood, pass them around your work, whatever. It's just inviting people to our church this Christmas season. And um, I would ask also, if you're planning on coming next week, and would be open to it. Uh, If you could come to the 9 o'clock hour, that would be better, uh, because we have a hunch that more people will be coming at the 10.30 service. So just to avoid um, overcrowding and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And also just be aware of parking. If you could park in the very back, just being uh, exceptionally aware that there will be more cars here probably and all that kind of stuff. So let's just love our community well by parking far away, that kind of thing. Um, Also next week, I just want to make mention the Thomases, our very own Thomases, are starring in, is this a worldwide production? It's just on the World Wide Web. Close. It's it's something like that. But uh, there are flyers on the back table, and cleverly, this is called the dress rehearsal. So when you're going, it's the actual play, but it's called the dress rehearsal. So it's just kind of a nice little switch up. I like that. And it's happening next Sunday. You're not allowed to go in the morning, because that's at 9.30, and you'd miss church here. So we don't want that. But there is an evening performance that I'm planning on attending, and love to go and support the Thomases with that. Um, Listen, Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're at, and we're going to wrap up chapter 2 right here before the end of the year, and then pick up chapter 3 starting in January, and um, the bulletin notes are not in your bulletin, so it didn't fall out, you're not missing it, they'll be posted online, they're all created uh, electronically, uh, but they're not in your hands in paper form, so they'll be online this afternoon, so you can pull them up, look at the community group questions, all that kind of a thing. Um, This morning, here is the big idea that I want you to get from Ephesians chapter 2, this back half of Ephesians 2, and then we're going to just give kind of some qualifiers of how this is done. But it's really in your title, Repairing Broken Relationships. And here's the big idea I want you to walk away with. God repairs broken relationships. That's really what God specializes in, actually, is repairing broken relationships. This morning as you walk in here, we walk in here from all walks of life and all kinds of different weeks that we've had, but let me assure you of something, and this isn't because someone told me this, I know it because I know people, and that is this, you have relationship problems right now this morning, and some of you would just be like, amen brother, preach it, because you're like, yes, I'm all over that, I know exactly what you're talking about, some of you have buried some of that, and you're like, don't even let me think about it. I don't want to go there. But I don't know if it's, uh, you know, a parent relationship, a brother, a sister, a friend, a coworker, a boss, a bill collector that you're on a first-name basis with. I don't know what it is, but you have relationship problems. Here's why. Because you're a human being, okay? And one human being, um, even Ted Kaczynski, the, the Unabomber, who tried to isolate himself completely in Montana, he had relationship problems, okay? You can't isolate yourself. If you're a human being then you have relationship problems. What I'm about to say this morning, this passage of Scripture actually um, is actually foundational for any kind of counseling that this week you would go seek out or that you would offer. And as Christians, I hope that we're in the Word constantly, and I hope that we're in prayer constantly in such a way that when we meet with people, we don't just grab lunch with someone, we don't just grab coffee with someone, we don't just hang out with someone, but we really enter that conversation and go, Lord, what do you have for this time together? 
I had some neat meetings this week, and as I went to them, I prayed, and some of them we started this way. Lord, we just open, we just open up to whatever you have for the conversation here this morning. And I hope there is Christian counseling going on at Starbucks this week. I hope it's going on across living room tables from a father to a child, from a friend to a friend over an internet cam, whatever it might be. But what you're about to hear is foundational to any counseling I would offer. I've just got done completing with a couple some premarital counseling. This came up. There's also lots of postmarital counseling, right, that's needed. This comes up. The kinds of relationship issues you have are discovered in, in here. Uh, doesn't the Christmas season seem to, um, to kind of magnify our relationship problems? Now, to be fair, they also magnify the blessings of relationship, don't they? I mean, you just feel closer and warmer to someone during the Christmas season. All, all month long, you know, we're singing about things like, uh, truly he has taught us to love one another and joy to the world and this closeness and this, this sense of that. But something about the Christmas season also makes you feel ripped off if that's not going on in your marriage. It makes you feel ripped off if you don't want to go home for Christmas. You're like, man, that's the last place I'd want to go. And something in you says, that's not right. That's not fair. I should want to go home for Christmas. I want to illustrate something, uh, something of this truth, uh, because I think we can all relate to it uh, with, a, with a couple named Chad and Stephanie. Now, Chad and Stephanie, um, they didn't really say this, but I'm putting a little quote underneath them, Okay. Here's the quote. There is no feeling more comforting and consoling than knowing you are right next to the one you love. Now that brings up warmth and emotion and feeling and snuggly thoughts. And that just looks like the picture of a happy couple right there, okay? Now notice that the couple hasn't changed. Notice the words haven't changed. All I've done is insert one tiny comma and change the picture. There is no feeling more comforting and consoling than knowing that you are right next to the one you love. Now look at Chad's face. He knows it. He knows he's right. Same couple. Here's what's fascinating. This can happen in a one-hour window, can't it? On, on one moment, you're right next to the one you love, and it's just going so wonderful, and you love this person, and, and you know you can write Hallmark cards in this moment, and something triggers, and it's only 20 minutes later. Same person, you're on the same carriage ride through the same city, same music's playing, and it's totally a different vibe. That's relationships, right? That's how they go sometimes. Same people, one little tiny comma. No, no real group is exempt from this. Here's um, a 19th century poet, uh, Lewis Carroll. He says, I'm fond of children, except boys. Uh, so um, here's a famous bartender, which I don't usually quote famous bartenders in church, but this one called to be quoted. Uh, call this an unfair generalization if you must, but old people are no good at everything. <laughs> I mean, children are ex- aren't exempt, old people aren't exempt, and Albert Einstein noticed this, women marry men hoping they will change, men marry women hoping they will not, so each is inevitably disappointed. <laughs> Bottom line is this, children not exempt, old people not exempt, uh, married couples and relationships not exempt. Uh, since I'm quoting famous bartenders and Albert Einstein, let me quote the Bible. That's where we really should be heading. Amen? Okay. James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law of the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now, you can read that apart from any other context in scripture and form an entire cult or religion off it, can't you? We looked at this last week. How are we saved, church? Think about last week. Ephesians 2.8.9. By grace, through faith, alone. 
right? But you can read that passage and say, God, help me. <laughs> God, help me with that. John 13, 34, Jesus speaking, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, you don't have to go back more than seven days. I don't care who you are in this room. You don't have to go back more than seven days to look at that commandment and say, I'm glad I'm not saved by keeping the law. Maybe you think you've done everything that you should to another person, but then there's the sins of, of omission, things that you should have done that you haven't done. And because you're not loving them well, you need a savior from that. Here's the, here's the point I want to start us off with. Mankind is helpless to break down the barriers that exist in relationships between people. How much more so are they helpless to break down the barrier between God and them? Now, that was all of last week. I'm not going to really recover ground from last week, but that's where we went last week. Paul is kind of taking, mind you, we're breaking this up week by week. This is a letter to the Ephesians churches. So this is to be read kind of in one sitting. So, so we're going to pick up on themes that he's already established and kind of put down. He's put down how we're saved. He's already talked about how to break the, the barrier that's between God and us. And now he's going to move on to really flesh that out with Christian unity and the church. I showed you that video from the start here. It's really kind of a compelling little... Uh, it shows you, uh, parents, how to have teachable moments with your kids. You're sitting there playing a racetrack. You can look at that and say, man, this is kind of like the church. That's all it is, a little teachable moment to just kind of take everyday life and say, say this is how the church ought to be. But here's another picture of that, of that video that the video didn't get into. What if the bumpers are arguing with each other, right? What if they're going, well, you're not really pulling hard enough, so I'm going to stop altogether. I mean, then the, the whole picture of the racetrack falls apart. And, and the, the idea that Paul's driving forward here and is elsewhere in Scripture is that, is that unity is so important for the mission of the church. And God hasn't left us on our own to just say, good luck with that. Man, your neighbors are some tough ones to get along with. Hope you do okay. He doesn't do that. He equips us. He's a loving parent. He's a loving father that says, I'm going to give you this, but I'm also going to equip you on how to do it. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14. Let me just read through 16 at first here. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Man, there's a lot to this, and we're going to try and pack it all in in a short period of time. Here's the first thing I want you to get uh, is this. God repairs relationships from the inside out. Big idea is that God repairs relationships. We're going to kind of qualify that as we go. But it's from the inside out. This is counterintuitive to, to most of us. This is counterintuitive to uh, the Shane Company, who's trying to sell you diamonds, which says the way you repair a relationship, guys, is what? Drop some dough. I mean, just get a good old fat diamond. That's going to bridge things. Isn't that an external thing, right? Ladies, really, how long does that last if you're still married to a nightmare of a guy? I mean, it's kind of cool, right? It's kind of nice having that, but it doesn't really repair anything. Uh, we're sold ideas. Watch for this uh, in the next couple of weeks. We're sold ideas all the time. 
that the right external thing is going to bridge this gap. It's going to repair this relationship. Now, guys, I'm not saying you shouldn't go out and and treat your spouse to a lovely, nice gift. Um, But that certainly isn't going to repair a relationship. Uh, External repairing of relationship can go on with us and God, too. And this, again, goes back to a a religious system, doesn't it? It's just, I'm going to perform for you, and then hopefully our, our, uh, our chasm will be somehow bridged that way. Verse 14 is just a great verse. It says, he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Here's what's not our peace. The message of Jesus. The idea of Jesus. Kind of the philosophy of Jesus, if you will. The lifestyle of Jesus. Just going to church and and talking about Jesus a bunch and and, and having Jesus stickers and Jesus mints and all kinds of things. Having a lifestyle of Jesus, that's not really what our peace is. The ethics of Jesus isn't our peace. There's one thing that's our peace, and it's the one thing we talked about last week. It's that treasure, right? It's that relationship. It's him. He himself is our peace. Think about the two ordinances that Jesus left, okay? In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate what's called the Lord's Table, or communion. And in communion is this fascinating thing where he looks at his disciples and says, take and eat. And there's this joining of us and Christ in the ordinances. And saying that we're actually participating in the death of Jesus, in the covering of the blood. Once you eat something, it becomes a part of you. You can't possibly separate out part of it. The second ordinance is baptism. And in baptism, we're identifying with Jesus, right? And both of those kind of carry with it this idea of of joining in supernaturally in a spiritual way with the risen Jesus Christ. John 14, 27, Jesus is talking and he brings up this idea of peace. He says to his disciples this. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Now he's kind of prepping his disciples for what's coming. They need peace, right? They're, entering, they're about to enter a season where their Lord and Savior is going to be dragged off and put to death. The previous verse leaves it where, uh, how, how this is going to be accomplished. Listen to this. Verse 26 of John 14 says this, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, elsewhere called the Spirit of Christ, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. How is Jesus our peace? Jesus is our peace by us being joined with him in baptism, joined with him in this, in this spiritual communion, husband and wife intimacy that goes on when we, when, we, when we follow Christ. But also in the day-to-day, I will remind you of all things by the Spirit of Christ that dwells with us. That's why Jesus could say this to his disciples. It's actually better for you that I go away than if I stay here. And you go, how could that possibly be? Because the Spirit of Christ is with you disciples, everywhere, all the time, unlike a physical, bodily Jesus was able to be. That's peace. That's what you really, really want for Christmas. Not many people know that, or a lot of people don't know that, right? What do you want for Christmas? And they'll give you a whole other litany list. This might come off as a little bit obnoxious sometimes, so I'm still trying to phrase it, but people always ask you at Christmas time, what do you want for Christmas? I mean, if I could put it down, I'd go, I've already got it. I really do. I don't want to be like an obnoxious Christian, but I really do have what I want for Christmas. It's peace with Christ. Grace and peace. That's it. That's the whole deal. 
Look at verse 14. Made one in his flesh. This is, G- this is Paul now not leaving it ambiguous as to how church unity ought to be. How is the barrier between us and, and God bridged? He doesn't leave it ambiguous. He answers it in a few verses. Verse 14, we're made one in his flesh. Verse 15, abolished the law. Verse 16, through the cross. Verse 18, we have full access in Christ. That last part, having full access in Christ, uh, we sing a song sometimes called Draw Near. Hebrews 14, 6 says this. Listen to this. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I told you earlier that God calls us to be united as a church, calls us to function in unity on mission as a church, and he doesn't leave us helpless as to how to accomplish that. He gives us all the mercy and grace that we need. Some, some of you have some uh, extra grace required, EGRs that are in your life, and you just go, man, you know what? As you're talking to this person, as you're interacting with this person, as you're anticipating going to their house for the holiday season, you just go, man, this is an extra grace required person. You know what you need to do? You need to boldly and confidently approach the throne of grace and say, God, this has to be you. This absolutely has to be you. And guess what? We all have them. Don't have a pity party that you've got. Dave, you don't know my family. Yes, I do. They have different names, but they're in my family too. I mean, they really are. They're everywhere. Here's the shocking thought. Maybe we're EGRs. Maybe here's people. I mean, think about this. There might be people right now praying and fasting, saying, Lord, I'm going to spend some time with so-and-so, and it's one of us or some of us, would you just give me the grace to make it through? I mean, that's the reality. And ten, we tend to have a, a little bit of a plank in our eye trying to pick out specks sometimes, don't we? Peace with God leads to peace with others. Peace with God leads to peace with others. This is a microcosm of the whole book. Paul starts with doctrine. Here's where you are positionally. Now let's figure out how to put that into practice. And we said at the very start of this series that the order is really important here. The order is important here, too. Don't people sometimes try to make peace with God by making peace with other people? Think about this. I'm going to do good to people. What are you doing? You're trying to make peace with them. I'm going to help people out. I'm going to love people who I can't stand. I'm going to try to love my enemy. I'm going to do all this in the flesh. Does it work, people? It doesn't. That does not accomplish things. Sometimes people, though, try to make peace with others so that God will be pleased with them, right? There's a barrier between us and other people. There's a barrier between God and us. And the order of that is, in, is crucial because peace with others does not equal peace with God. Peace with God leads to peace with others. Peace with others, starting point, does not equal or lead to peace with God by grace alone through faith. Here's another way of saying the same idea. Repaired relationships, I've got a strained relationship with someone, let's say. Repaired relationships, reconciled is a biblical word, relationships, is a byproduct of a reconciled or repaired relationship with God. So if you set out to start with the repairing of relationship, it's never going to come to fruition. But it is a byproduct of being in right relationship with your creator. I've had a richer relationship with a longtime friend, someone I've known for a really long time, as this person has yielded their life to Christ, 
as this person has grown closer to Christ, started submitting his life to Christ, walking with Christ, being in the Word, guess what? My relationship with this person has dramatically increased. There wasn't some massive chasm between us where we couldn't talk to each other, but there were walls of hostility there. And we've actually identified it. We said, man, isn't that cool? there's There's a whole world of rich relationship here that just, it was not possible until we were both pursuing Christ. I hadn't really changed a whole lot in these modes. I mean, I've been growing and all that, but this person has come a long way. Guess what? That's the gap that's there in your marriage. That's the gap that's there in your family. That's the gap that's there in relationship that you just go, man, how come we can't seem to get it together? Lots to say there, but we'll move on. Sin separates people from God and each other, and only Christ's atonement can remove remove that sin barrier. Here's the second thing I want to show you from this passage. God repairs relationships. That's the big theme. God God repairs relationships, not just from the inside out, which is counterintuitive, but by destroying walls that divide. Now, walls built to divide nations, such as Germany. This is the wall in Germany coming down. Some of you remember uh, David Hasselhoff just cheering on the top of that wall. Uh, I'm still trying to forget. But, um, but here's a wall that came down in my lifetime that, that divided a nation, right? Just built right through the middle of a nation. What a, what a just physical picture of the walls that divide people and countries and nations. But guess what? That goes on in our families, doesn't it? One uses cement and mortar and guards and barbed wire. The other one uses careless words that just get thrown down like a big old brick. Mistrust gets laid on top of that. Bitterness kind of is the mortar, and you just start building. Man, if you aren't in your family weakly identifying and tearing down walls like that with the power of the gospel, there are walls forming that you don't want built because they take years to to undo, undo sometimes. The reason that you don't want one person in your family treating another person in their family uh, is, is first and foremost because that person's an image bearer of God. But secondly, you identify as, as a person in that family, man, this is just a wall. Can't you see? This is an enemy wanting to come in and build up walls. Walls are part of our sinful nature. Sin is the root cause of all disunity. Think about this. If you were perfectly holy, you would be in perfect harmony with other people if they were perfectly holy. That's why I could say with utter confidence, you have relationship problems walking into this building this morning. Think about the the Godhead. Perfect unity, perfect harmony amongst Father, Son, and Spirit because there's perfection there. There's no sin in the Godhead. And so there's no walls that are built up. I put this in your notes, which you don't have in front of you, so you can look later on online. Um, James 4.3 lays out the idea of walls and sin. It lays down this progression beautifully. Just, just listen to this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Wouldn't you like to know that sometimes? You ever driving somewhere? We haven't been to Christmas in the park yet, but let's say we're going out to Christmas in the park. It's a great family time. I've picked the perfect Christmas music to be on. We're driving down the road, and the family just implodes. We're off to have a wonderful family Christmas time. And all of a sudden, it's like we're the Griswolds, just fighting at each other's throats, and we're a complete nightmare. And you just go, where does this even come from? What's happening? By the way, I'd recommend periodically, if not often, pulling over, saying a word of prayer, and addressing that. Not just hoping that goes away. That's engaging in spiritual battle right then and there. 
not accepting that that's the norm. Here it is. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Ah, that's parents yanking their hair out. Is it not this, that your, that your passions are at war within you? Your desire, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now, what a great passage to meditate on this Christmas season as you feel the magnified barriers between you and other family members. God, what's the root of this? Why, why am I even still mad at my uncle? I mean, what's, what's there, Lord? I want to tear it down. I don't want to be a, an accomplice to this anymore. People in all cultures and ages divide naturally and are desperate to try and reconcile the rifts that are there. Ron, you just came back from months in China. I don't have to ask him. I know there were rifts in China. It goes on halfway around the world as much as it does here in the Bay Area. Now, to that backdrop, listen to this. The Church of Christ is the one alternative to the discord that exists in our world. Isn't that powerful? I mean, what a compelling picture for the church. The Church of Christ, and there's one Church of Christ. The Church of Christ is the one alternative to the, to the discord that is around us. Now, if you had great world leadership and you had phenomenal governments, I think that maybe they could start to try and make the world a neighborhood. They could start to have some kind of community spirit to it. God calls the church not to make it a neighborhood, but to actually make it a brotherhood, a family. And all of a sudden, we see the vision for the church is lifted way beyond any human endeavor, way beyond a collection of great minds and great hearts and passionate people. This is a supernatural uh, thing that has to go on to make this a brotherhood. It's a challenge, and we need the Lord for it. Verse 14 The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. And verse 16, killing the hostility. You look at Old Old Testament architecture of the temple, and there's kind of this this visual picture of the walls that are up. Remember the the most holy place where the priest would go only once a year? Only one uh, person was allowed in there. And there was a wall separating that. And then you moved on out, and there were these different courts, Right? And as you went out, there was the the court for the Israelites. There was the court for the women. There was the court for the Gentiles. And there were walls that were there. Do you remember what happened when Christ died on the cross to the veil in the most holy place? What happened? Top to bottom, it is ripped apart. Thereby shattering that wall. Pointing back to the cross. That's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's, he's pointing that back to us, making it crystal clear. Look at verses 17 to 19 with me. Follow along. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Far off is the Gentiles. Visual picture in the Old Testament uh, temple is that they're, they're way out there. There's actually signs posted. If Gentiles try to make it further, you'll be killed. It's according to God's law. Those are the far off ones. Who are the ones who are near? It's the Jews, right. It's the Israelite nation. But peace is needed for both of them. Uh, Verse verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of the household of God. There it is. God doesn't want the world to be a brotherhood uh, or, or a neighborhood. He wants it to be a brotherhood. He wants us to be family. That's his design for us, is that we be family. Behold, unto you is born a Savior in the form of a child. If you haven't been to Bethlehem yet, over at First uh, Baptist Santa Clara, just an awesome thing we like to go enjoy uh, every single year. And to hear these passages of Scripture read while this whole world is kind of going on all around you. And his name shall be called. And one of those names is the Prince of of peace. And it says that Jesus is going to come and preach peace. Notice that near and far all need a Savior. There's some, of, there's some today. Most in this room are Gentiles. So we, we fall in the far category. But there's some today that, that get this mixed up this way. Well, I'm pretty much a Christian. I go, huh? Are you, are you pretty much alive or pretty much dead? I mean, how does that work? I don't understand that. Help me with that. What does that mean? Just explain that to me. Usually a person will, will, will go on to say, well, I was, I, was, uh, I was born into a Christian family. I say, okay, good there. Uh, pray before almost every meal. Awesome. Uh, went to Valley Christian. Good for you. Um, and I go to church or whatever. You're close, right? You're near in that sense. You're, you're near to things, but you need the peace of Christ. You need him as your peace or, or else, or else you're, you're apart. God comes to destroy the walls that divide. Sin is what divides. Let me ask you this. If there is now no distinction, and this is part of what this passage is really trying to drive home, that there's no distinction. I mean, get your head around this for a minute. God views someone who is, who is born again into his family with no other distinction between this person and that person. We just sang this line. I might butcher it, but you can help me out because you know the, the, the hymn. Uh, something about your slave is now your brother. Your slave is now your brother. Your, your boss can worship in the exact same church that you're in. And you can be on equal footing because the foot of the cross is level ground. We're all just thrilled to have a chair, to have a seat at the family of God and to be at his table. We don't look across the room and say, man, my disgusting sin was way less bad than that person over there. I'm way more in. No, none of that. So if God has no distinction, should the church have any distinction amongst Christians, brothers and sisters? The obvious answer is no. We're going to get to this in the next section. But practically, we need some work there. We need some prayer there. We need to boldly enter the throne of grace and say, God, I need I, I, I know by faith I have full access to all the mercy and grace I need. Help me today. Because I'm showing favoritism. Help me today and I repent of this distinction that I'm making. That's the old Adam that I was born into. You've made me a part of this, this new Adam. Help me live and walk in those kinds of ways. One of the challenges I have for you is to live out what you know to be positionally true. Here's what I mean by that. Someone comes from a life of utter vulgarity that is offensive to you. Not only that, but they know how to push your buttons because you've worked with them for a long time. And you were told to pray for your enemies, so you took God up on that. You started to pray for them. And lo and behold, God does a miracle in their heart. 
that they bend their knee and they come to Christ and they start attending your church. Now, in your head, because you've read your Bible and you understand this to be true, you say positionally, now and for all of time, this person is an, on equal footing, he's a brother of mine. But you keep having these older brother of the prodigal son tendencies that say, I never took my inheritance and took off and lived in filth. I was always faithful to you, Lord. I've never had a huge party thrown for me. No one ever clapped like they did at that person's testimony in their baptism. And that's the flesh that needs to be put to death. Here's what I would challenge you to do, is to live out practically what you know to be true positionally. So you just keep, you just keep washing your mind with this truth. Lord, I need to remember they're a part of the family. I'm no better than they are. I thank you by grace. I didn't have to maybe go through some of the stuff, but, but we're all just, just thrilled to be in. And you start to, to put into practice what you know to be true positionally. Lastly, look at verse 20. Members of the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And I'll stop there. God repairs relationships, finally, by building something brand new. Verse 15 says that He creates in Himself one new man. Part of the healing that comes, part of the repairing of relationship that comes, is that you are now pulling together in the same direction and, and it's, you're, you're, you're a part of building something brand new. Here's why in this church, you can end up finding yourself in a relationship with someone that apart from Christ, you would have no common interest with. You ever, you ever pick that out? You ever spend time with someone and you go, man, if you weren't a Christian, I've said this to people all the time. I go, man, you'd probably hate my guts. You'd probably think I was this, this, and this, because we kind of were raised on, you know, in, in, in different circles. But in Christ, here we are on the same team and loving it. Here's what happens. Some of you have been born. Some of you have been inbred with some, some race barriers. And you find yourself getting to know someone of a different race or a different socioeconomic stratosphere than, than the one you were brought into. And it starts to shatter whole ideas about who these people, there's a wall, really are. And actually starts to get you thinking outside of yourself to other people, and you go, man, I've just, I've just prejudged a whole group of people unfairly. In Christ, we're one brand new thing. Do you see how that healing starts to affect even relationships outside the body of Christ? This building of something new, this living holy temple that God's doing, creating one new man in himself. I love Paul. It gives me lots of confidence. Paul switches metaphors, I mean, like it's his socks. He's changing all the time within a passage. He goes from one new man to body, to a building, to a temple. So as I like get my metaphors all over the map, just know I'm being biblical with that, okay? Give me some grace there. In a way, so think about this. Imagine that you are of the Jewish nation. You would be, in a way, tempted toward older brother of the prodigal son tendencies, would you not? You would say, man, we've always been here. We've always had the law. We've always d tried to keep this, this, that, and the other thing. If God designed it in such a way that when you became a part of Christ, now in this new church, you became a Jew, who would always have the upper hand at family gatherings? The Jews would. 
That's that, that's that obnoxious person in your family that somehow always holds that something over you. It's ugly, it's sinful, but it's there. That's how that would be. What if all of a sudden God, God drew it up in such a way that, 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 that Jews were to just dismiss their Jewish heritage and say, okay, now we're all going to kind of become Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles would have it over them, and the Jews would always feel inferior in that. I mean, just in the brilliant sovereignty of God, He creates something brand new. Your new identity, people, here's what He's saying, is not Jew. It is not Gentile. It's not we kept the law and had it for ages, and we don't, and revel in that. It's this brand new identity of Christian. Now, I know that name's gotten really muddled in in ages past, but let's reclaim it. Let your first identity be that of Christian. Not even as upper management or something else, but Christian. Not as husband, mother, friend, anything else, but Christian. Let that be your overriding, lead-with type identity. The church, in some ways, is like a birth. There's no distinction anymore between mom and dad. When Caleb's born, you can't pull out and say, well, this you know, 46% is Jonathan, and this part over here is Bertha. It's this beautiful thing. It's this brand new baby. And you just go, man, what a, what a miracle that is. That's kind of, a, kind of a neat little picture of the church. However, if you want to take the metaphor and really be accurate with it, in a way, it would be, it would be unlike a birth, because it would be like an alien child, because it wouldn't even be another person of the same kind. It's something totally brand new. God's a creative God. And in the church, he builds something brand new, invites us into it. Verse 19 says two ideas that are really the same idea. Fellow citizens and members of God's household. Most people around the table at my, actually, I think all of them, uh, at my Christmas table coming up soon, will be citizens of the United States and members of the family. It further just defines more intimate terms the same reality that we're one in Christ. I said this before that, that practically growth is needed in this area. I read this phrase in a commentary this week and it's kind of grabbed hold of my mind and I like it. It's this idea that, that sometimes revelation leads to revolution. My mind just started to, to play out different things. Um, what if? What if you were raised? We happen to be uh, Saturday night, the roses. Um, seven years running now, I think, or eight years maybe, have, have been helping out with Help One Child, which is just a Christmas party that this, this wonderful church up in, uh, where is it? I was there. Los Altos. I want to say Palatine. I knew that was wrong. Los Altos puts on every year, and they're for foster kids. They're for kids that are, that are there, and uh, let's just say that one of the faces that we looked at last night went through life in an institution, and they went from family to family, and their whole identity and their whole world kind of kind of was, was just defined by that. I mean, this is, just, this, is what this, phrase, this is what this phrase, revelation can lead to revolution, did for me. And then what if at age 26, somehow, some way, a person approaches this kid and says, um, I'm your mom. I'm your mom. I gave birth to you 26 years ago. I was there. You're my kid. Let me tell you the story of why I had to give you up for adoption. And let me tell you about the last 22 years and my search to try and track you down. Can you see how that revelation would revolutionize that person's world? 
If we could take that little story and just kind of start to magnify it, that's what it means to realize that in Christ, the barrier between us and God is broken down. There's no more wall of separation. We're no longer wandering and looking. We're home. And that that revelation leads to a complete revolution of how we live our life and what matters to us and all that we thought before. We've already covered this well in chapters 1 and 2. But go back and read all the formerly you were's. You were this. You were that. But God, the initiator, comes and pursues. This passage, we don't have time to unpack it, but this passage points out this. As we build this church, Kel stood up here. Kel, by the way, is one of our elders, for those of you who may not know. Kel stood up here and shared some of our uh, financial picture looking forward. We're just dreaming and praying and saying, God, what do you have for us in 2011 and beyond? As we build this church, as God is doing something brand new here, it's about four, four uh, four years and two months old now. As God is building something here, Like this church has done, we're building on a foundation that was already laid. We're part of a legacy. It's so powerful to know that as you're witnessing, as you're dreaming up a new uh, ministry, that you're building on a foundation that was laid long ago. And that the chief cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And that as you go and minister with other churches, we're in partnership last night with some ministry with another church. And you say, man, we're, we're part of a legacy. What we do today matters to what our children are going to do tomorrow if the Lord doesn't come back. We're part of this legacy. Last thing I want to say before I read the last verse is this, that you have a key role in unity. You have a key role in unity. We're going to look in chapter 4. I'm going to read part of this as kind of a benediction this morning. But Paul is going to go into great detail as to sure ways to break relationship. You want to break relationship with someone? Do these things. He also goes into sure ways to make a relationship. You want to make a relationship, rebuild a relationship? You follow these things. Right relationship requires a commitment to right action. So if you are here and you're sitting with your arms folded saying, man, this church needs to be more unified. By the way, I'm thrilled with what God has done in this building. It's phenomenal to me always more room for growth, and we have a lot of room for growth in this room. But if your stance, I know it's not there right now, but if your stance is arms folded and saying, man, this place needs to be more unified. I wish these people would get their act together. You need to go home, you need to look in the mirror, and you start to read scripture with your face in the mirror. And just just be allowing yourself to hear the scriptures of this. And to realize, man, I have a key role to the unity of this place. I have a key role to making sure that we stay on mission and we're striving after the right things. Pretty powerful. Finally, here's the last verse, verse 21, uh, or verse 22, actually. Um, In whom the whole structure is joined together. That's verse 21. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want you to get your head around this. People are reading this in an area. Go back and read in Ephesus sometimes, sometime about the temple that was built to the goddess Artemis. Artemis of Ephesians, or of Ephesus, really. And that these temples are built all over the place. 
And now the message comes out that you are the temple. You're the living temple of God. The church is not a place or a building. It's the people of God. And that God, the Holy One, the Almighty One, your Creator, is going to dwell somehow in you. That means the incarnational Jesus gets to go with you wherever you go. That's a thrilling thought. It's a really convicting thought, isn't it? Former idolaters are now part of the temple. Gentiles who were kept away from the most holy place, away from the temple, at arm's length, are now a part of a living stone as part of this temple, this holy dwelling place of God. That's a powerful picture. When you're looking across a welcome lunch or during a greeting time at someone in this church, you look at someone and you realize, man, this is a person who is part of this living temple. The holy God dwells in this person, and that's a powerful thing. As the band comes up, I want you to listen to this passage in Ephesians 4 as kind of a benediction. Listen to this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now you know more about the calling to which you've been called, church. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. As you enter our church building every week, there's a banner out there that has the number one built into it. That is the overarching theme of Ephesians. Bow your head and close your eyes. I want to just challenge you with four concluding thoughts. Number one is this. Don't base your salvation on the church. That's found only in Christ. But love the church. To not love the church is to be uh, in relationship with a buddy who is just beaming over his bride. Can't stop talking about his wife. And you say, yeah, I like my buddy, but I can't stand his wife. And every time that he brings her up, I roll my eyes and I make negative comments. In that story, Christ is the one gushing over the bride. And for you to bail on the church and say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand his church, is to miss the picture. If you're intimately in love with Jesus, you will invest in, you will sacrifice, you will pour into and love his bride. Number two is practice what you know to be true positionally. Number three is let the gospel of peace be preached this Advent season. I mean that with your life. I mean that with your words. And number four is that all that you ever want for Christmas has already been paid for and given. Your role is to receive and be grateful. Jesus, thank you for purchasing us. Thank you, Jesus, for ripping the wall of hostility that was between us as we're born into this life, enemies of you. We acknowledge that and freely receive the gift of peace that you give to us. God, I pray we wouldn't be distracted this coming season. 
with all kinds of things that would draw us away from this gift that we have. I pray, Lord, that you would flood us with not only opportunities, but the courage to boldly walk in a manner worthy of our calling and to be preachers of peace, not only this Advent season, but as a way of life. God, every one of us in this room so desperately needs your grace and your mercy and your power and your revelation to keep us on track, to move us forward and to grow us in these areas. We thank you in advance that you promised to richly supply us all that we need. And all God's people said, Amen.